sang his song to me There was a message in his melody Sweetest lyrics that I ever heard There's a message in the songs of words Tomorrow is another day Living is the only way Tomorrow's gonna ever come Listen to the words of the song inspiration. I'm Stephanie Wilson Coleman, known as the Empowerment Doctor, and I want to thank everyone who's listening to this very special segment for today. As you know, I like to bring information and people who can help us with any of the issues that we're having in our daily lives so that we can live the best life that we have available for us. Our days are numbered, and as I always say, we know we got a 100% chance of dying. So let's let Every day be the best day we can be. And we're not going to let anything or any problem that's standing in our way determine how much we accomplish in this great life. So with that being said, I got to do some housekeeping. Uh, first is I want to thank my supporters. Rise, when you need a supply company to rise to your needs, call Resource Industrial Supply Equipment. They've been one of our sponsors since the beginning of time, and I really appreciate having them there. If you're watching this show, you're watching it right now on Facebook Live and Empower DR. That's my personal page. If you're on Empowerment Doctor, that's my business page. You won't see that live tonight, but you'll see it there eventually after we get it edited down. Uh, and I want to thank you for every single thing and watching every single show. So with that, I am going to introduce you to Rachel Rubenstein and Brian Haggard. They're my experts for tonight and they are actually very nice people. So for those of you who need to ask questions about your cousin and the person you work with, because you know, we never ask them for ourselves, feel free to do that. And as you know, you can put in comments in the text session. I have my uh, Facebook, I have my handy dandy telephone. So I'll be checking out there to see if there are any comments. I know that this subject might be a little heavy for some and you may be a little shy if that's the case. You can leave me messages on my email or however you want to get them to me. And then Rachel and Brian are going to also leave contact information for you so that you can contact them. So I do want to encourage you to reach out to them so that they can help you in any way that they can help you. And they're the experts, so not me. So I can't help you solve that, but I can help you get in touch with them. So we want to introduce first Rachel Rubenstein. I'm going to read a little bit, okay? Because you know what? I can remember all this stuff, y'all. It's like... There was a time, but it's not now. <laughs> so, Rachel is a certified sex addiction therapist, supervisor, having received certifications from Dr. Patrick Carnes International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. She specializes in addiction, trauma, and somatic experiences. After, excuse me, after achieving her master's in clinical social work, she treated adolescents, at a few New York-based inpatient and outpatient programs. And that's a little bit about Rachel because I want her to tell you more about that. So she is currently now though located in the Chicagoland area. So I want you to know you don't have to travel far. However, with virtual, with virtual technology, you're never traveling far anymore. Then with her, there's Brian Haggard. Brian Haggard is licensed. Uh, 
social worker also, but he's a CSAT candidate. And he, I'm gonna let him explain what that is when he has his opportunity to introduce himself. So he has a master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign campus. And he has undergraduate degrees in social work and history from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. So he is Illinois raised it seems, at least educated. So that's pretty good. Those are pretty popular colleges for us here. He also uses various techniques such as dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, person-centered trauma-informed motivational interview, strength-based and solutions-focused therapy. And I know these are a lot of tech a lot of technical terms for us listening tonight, but trust me, they're gonna break it down for us, make it plain so that you can get the help that you need. So welcome guys to A Sip of Inspiration. Thank you very much. So we're gonna start with Rachel so she can you can tell us more about what you do, where you're located, how people can reach you and all of that stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And also just being willing to have this conversation because in my experience, even talking about healthy sex, is something that can be so hard for people. So I think talking about sex addiction is really brave. So I have been a therapist specializing in trauma and addiction for over 26 years. I've been working with sex addiction in particular for over 15 years. And I work with individuals, the addict, the partner, the couple, individual therapy, group therapy, and intensives. And our office is at 980 North Michigan Avenue. Right now we're doing mostly virtual until my daughter gets vaccinated, which is soon um, and hopefully in person again soon. Um, and I feel really grateful because even though it's been 26 years that I've been doing this work, I feel like working with addiction, in particular sex addiction has made me a better person. I have a privilege of helping people heal in their lives. And I really laugh every single day, mostly at my clients, but sometimes with my clients. So I feel really lucky to love what I do every single day, even after 26 years. But I'm really grateful for being here. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for joining us. And Brian, could you tell us a little more about you? Okay. Um, my name is Brian Haggard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm also born and raised in Chicagoland area. Uh, so I've been working in mental health for about eight years. Uh, mostly, most of my work have been in uh, psychiatric hospitals as well as nonprofit world. However, I'm a baby when it comes to individual therapy. I've been doing private practice work for about a year and a half. And I met Rachel about a year ago and she brought me on uh, to be, and now I'm a CSAC candidate. That is a certified sex addiction therapist candidate, meaning that I'm training under Rachel to be certified. Thank you. So where can the listeners reach you all if they have questions, if they want to make appointments? And I need you guys who are at home listening to take notes. And if not for yourself, for your friends, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so definitely you can check out our website at changesfc.com. My phone number is 312-593-1711. That's 312-593-1711 and email rachel at changesfc.com as well. So any of those ways are good to get connected to me. And Brian, do you want to tell your details? Yes. 
you can also reach me at uh, changesfc.com as well as bryant at changesfc.com. I actually do not know my number by heart because I just started. However, I can look that up for you guys and send that to you and Al, and you can share that uh, my intake uh, number for the, the people. Okay, thank you all for that. And I know the listeners at home are glad to have that information also. Um, I think this is a great topic because I know a lot of people have addictions and some addictions are, we're accustomed to talking about. We're accustomed to talk about alcoholism. We're accustomed and talking about drug addiction, uh, even uh, food addictions to food but we don't talk about some of the other addictions and we know that they exist. So I thought this would be a good platform for that. So one question I have, and I know some of the viewers are asking, how do I know if I am a sex addict? I'm gonna let Brian field that one. Hello, hello. I have uh, you know some information to share with you guys. So for most addictions, whether it's food, sex, drugs, or other substances, gaming to a degree, there's a certain criteria that you have to meet in order to be technically diagnosed with uh, an addiction. Starting compulsive, a compulsive behavior is something that is somewhat that you can do obsessively, meaning you have no control over this particular behavior to a point where it can cause harm to, your, to you physically. So, um, an individual can possibly masturbate to a point where they have an abrasion on their private area, that can be a little, that's compulsive. Um, an increased tolerance of, of sex could be an indicator of sex, a possible addiction where an individual can watch porn for an obsessive amount of hours. They can possibly want to engage in sex for an obsessive amount of time. Um, another indicator would be an effort to stop However, it, they fail to stop. That could look like promising yourself or your partner that you'll stop watching porn to a degree or promising yourself or your partner that you won't cheat again. Um, another indicator is the preoccupation of sexual fantasies. And that could use a lot of your brain power. Like an individual can have cravings to a degree of thinking about sex or thinking about fantasies a lot of the time. Another indicator is an inability to fulfill obligations. You know how when it, when it pertains to like uh, drugs, an individual can possibly use at work, an individual can fulfill, fulfill, fail fulfilling their obligations like going to school, uh, spending time with their friends and family and things like that to a point that it becomes obsessive. And, and another example for that would be an individual can possibly watch porn at work they'll get risky with the, the get risky with these particular behaviors uh and they will still continue them so those are four different indicators in which that an addiction could be present however i do think that i believe that it's you should uh get it an assessment by a professional to tech to be technically diagnosed so and a compulsive behavior a failure to stop the particular behavior, preoccupation of fantasies and obsessing over the behavior and, if, and the inability to complete obligations like uh, working, spending time with friends and family and 
suffering consequences like or being riskier to a point where you're actually watching porn at work. That's our that's some indicators of possible addiction to sex. I hope that was clear. I know that yes, was a that lot. was very clear. Um, in today's societies, for the last couple of years, we've been home. Okay, and so I think people started to binge out on some of the sex sex websites and uh, porn websites. And there are a lot of them when you Google them. It used to be one or two. Now it seems to be easily accessible. So would that be an indication that they have? Because some people say, well, you know, I was just using up the time. I had extra time. I'm not addicted. So would that be a sign of an addiction as opposed to just trying to keep yourself busy? Because sometimes people think, I'm just trying to keep myself busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And and I've actually, especially even when I was working with teenagers who tended towards uh, using pot or other drugs, like people do this, it's not an addiction. And I think what's hard with sex addiction versus substances is that a process addiction like sex or food or money or work, the goal is to have a healthy relationship and a healthy relationship with sex is different for every person. So what I hear you ask, and certainly like a lot of clients will say to me, but doesn't everyone have something that they're addicted to? And that's, that's, that could be true that maybe there's things that we use in a way that's not always so healthy. That's different than a dependency or an addiction to. I think that during COVID, this complicated things a lot because I think that being shut down and having very little access to support and then numbing our feelings with all kinds of things like escalated a lot of people's addictions. But when I think of drug addiction, there's two different things. There's dependency and there's abuse. There's two, that's two different diagnoses. So if someone's coming to me with a drug addiction, they might only meet the criteria for abuse, which means that maybe their relationship with it isn't so healthy and they don't always use it in a, a way that is good for them, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're an addict. Dependence is different criteria. That means that's impacting all kinds of parts of their lives. And that is something that is a, a different level. That means that they are addicted to it. Okay, so if it is impacting more than one area of your life or all parts of your life, and that is an addiction. So people need to be clear about that. And at this point, that could be a lot of things. It could be drugs, alcohol, food, sleep, work, like you said, uh, it could be sex. It could be mm -hmm. a lot of things. So we need to look at how we use addiction. And if we look at it like that, how we view addiction, then that should help us individually remove some of the, <laughs> opinions that we tend to have about people when they're addicted to something is because with that definition, we probably all have an addiction. Well, could possibly. Yeah, possibly. could possibly have an addiction yeah. that, we, that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. I think what's really important what Rachel said is the, the dependence versus the abuse point, mm -hmm. because if that's the case, we can all say that there are things that we feel like we can and cannot do or cannot control all the time. However, I do think that an individual that is listening to this should speak to a professional before they like self-diagnose themselves with anything. 
because based on their circumstances or what is happening in their life right now, they could just be uh, abusing particular things and not still be an addict. I think that that's really a uh, very different criteria. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you catch it in the abuse stage, mm -hmm. that's a great place to catch it. Yeah. Yeah. But I will be honest with you. I don't think this is cynical and say that if not a hundred percent, I would say 99.9% .9 of the addicts who walk into treatment are not there because they recognize that they have a problem. It's usually other people in their life who recognize. So even to be able to self-report and say, yeah, this is impacting my work situation, or this is impacting my marriage, or I've tried to stop. I have a lot of clients who are addicts who did not experience things that way because they were so compartmentalized, like they already rationalized it. And so in, if it wasn't for trying to save their marriage or being arrested or, or threat at work, then they wouldn't have come in at all. So sometimes you can't rely on the, our report or our perception of things to know the truth. That is, that's so true because we are the last to know often because it makes perfect sense to us. You know, when I eat chocolate for breakfast, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> so another question that I have is that, are there any prescription medication that people can take to reduce their sex drive? Because some people say, well, you know, I just have this really high sex drive. So how is that different? And is there any medication that they could take to reduce their sex drive? So this kind of answers the question, but not really, because I think that that's a myth about what sex addiction is. Sex addiction has nothing to do with the sex drive, right? Like people can have very high sex drives and that is not what causes a sex addiction. But I think that a lot of clients who come in, a way that they've rationalized their behavior is saying, I'm, I just have a high sex drive. And that's a rationalization. It's actually not the case because that's not addiction, right? People, you can have right. a high sex drive, but if you have a high sex drive, you hopefully like find partners who want to like involve themselves in the same way that, that you do, or you find ways that are not harmful. But I think it's easier for people to say, it's just a high sex drive and I'm misunderstood. And let me take a pill. Because certainly you can maybe take medication to lower your sex drive, um, but that doesn't do anything for addiction. Did that make sense at all? Yes, that makes perfect sense, right. So uh, glad to bust the myth about the high sex drive because people do think, oh, I just have a really high sex drive. I just mm -hmm. need it 24 times a day. That's just how I always been. Uh, mm -hmm. Not realizing that the other factors, you know, how the, how was the rest of your life, as you all mentioned before, how was the rest of your life being affected? How yeah. is it affect the relationships that you have and even your ability to work and, mm -hmm. and do some other things that you need to do when you, while you're here on earth, we came here on earth to do a lot of things, people. And in addition to sex, we came here to do a lot of other things. Uh, so thank you for that. So can masturbation and pornography be a part of the sex addiction? Because now that we've normalized things like Pornhub, um, people seem to think, oh, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Brian, do you want to take that? Yeah. Uh, 
You are right. Absolutely. Uh, masturbation and pornography can be part of a sex addiction. And the point that I made earlier is when things become compulsive and obsessive. So for an individual who could be, who's not an addict, they can possibly watch porn and, and not prevent them from being aroused by their partners. They can watch it for a short period of time and then that's it for them. However, for an addict, uh, the use of porn can become obsessive and compulsive, meaning they cannot control the time frame in which they're on it. They could start to fantasize more about pornography, to use more pornography. And of course, masturbation can, can become obsessive to a point an individual cause harm to their private parts. And one of the side effects of pornography that people sometimes have a hard time understanding is they can use pornography to a point where they're not aroused by their partners. They'll need an extra stimuli aligned with their partners in order to be aroused in, with real sex. Because when you think of pornography, there's a lot of different pornography. There's webcams, there is uh, different genres in pornography, and that sometimes can, can create in diff, uh, a virtual reality for mm -hmm. an addict. And that's not what sex is when, when it comes to being with a partnership. So it can delude the addict to believing that they're in this alternate reality and then they'll be linked. Their arousal template can be linked to that virtual reality. Actually, really scary. Oh, I'm sorry. And go ahead, go ahead. So no. I, you know, I'm 50 and my first, I got an Atari. That was my first, I guess, toy, like my first system. But I remember when my nephew, who's now 27, started playing his Xbox and I would die. I think he was playing Call of Duty. And every single time I tried to play, I would die within seconds because my brain is not wired to move that fast. Like it is just not wired. And I think what's actually really scary and they call it a contemporary sex addict because watching porn and having the access to the internet now actually can be the original trauma to our brains that create an addiction. Because there are definitely people who use porn and masturbation in a healthy way. And I know couples who watch porn together or who can watch porn and masturbate and be in connection with their relationships. But there is a problem with the internet and porn in particular, and particularly people who first experience sexually is porn. And if it's information or images that they are not developmentally able to handle, that could be so traumatizing to a child that it creates a pattern of obsessive and compulsive behaviors that becomes a sex addiction. When I just think about how fast everything is moving now, mm -hmm. and particularly during the pandemic, when our whole life, more or less, was virtual. And it is so much easier to be in relationships with people who you don't ever have to get close to, never like have to figure out how to navigate conflict with or smell bad with like any of it than it is to be in real life. Oh, that is so true. Uh, and, and now I'm thinking about everything else. We've been watching TV. We were just doing all of this other stuff and not finding anything to do. And now I'm thinking about the normal amount of books I read while I was in the pandemic, mm -hmm. but but those folks were waiting, you know what I'm saying? And I said, oh, this is the perfect time to do them because there's not much else to do. So it's like, God, 
But then we got back to normal and I got back to normal. So Yeah, so I think that's actually a great example because another way of talking about sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. Mm-hmm. Sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. So people who are sex addicts are afraid and threatened by intimacy, but crave it. And so find ways that are not so helpful or healthy to find that. Um, and so when you think about like, even like reading books or, I mean, during the pandemic, we really couldn't be in connection with the world around us safely. And so average people with no addiction may have spent a little, and I'm guilty of the reading and the Netflix and all of that, like it is disconnecting, but for people with an intimacy disorder, it is easier for them. It just becomes another way of living life and that they can't go back to normal. There's no normal to go back to. Okay. So creating an intimacy, how, what steps do people take to create intimacy? What does it look like? How do you know if you've done it? Because sometimes people just don't know how to create intimacy. Um, You know, and, and when I read, I think about it, there's a certain amount of intimacy that's created with the characters uh, Mm -hmm. in the books that I read Mm -hmm. and, you know, and certain characters I like. And then I've read some books where I says, oh God, I've got to close you. I'm at the end. I'm really going to miss you, you know? So how Mm -hmm. do you create intimacy in sexual intimacy or intimacy in the relationship so that you can have healthy sex? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think that Maybe I'll start by saying that it's understood that the majority of sex addicts have some kind of trauma, usually childhood trauma. It is statistically, it's more often emotional abuse, verbal abuse, and neglect, some sexual abuse, some physical abuse, but it doesn't have to be those kinds of traumas where intimacy and being close to people was threatening and dangerous. And but we're human. And so a healthy part of us really wants intimacy. And so even as kids learning different ways that maybe were really helpful and supportive as children when you're in your trauma, but then become the addiction later. And so one of those things is like these core beliefs that the sex addict has. And a core belief of a sex addict is I'm unlovable the the way I am. Another core belief is that if anyone really and truly knew me, they wouldn't love me. Another belief might be, I'm the only person who can meet my needs. And then another belief of a sex addict is that sex is the most important thing. So one of the things that's true for all sex addicts is not being their authentic selves, not being honest, and not only lying about the kinds of acting out, but really and truly not knowing how to speak their truth, ask for what they need, be in conflict. Like there's so much codependency underneath the sexual acting out. So when you think about an iceberg, that's like the metaphor that people use a lot. The tip of the iceberg that people see is the sexual acting out behaviors. But underneath that is codependency, fear of loss, fear of abandonment, So the beginning of recovery for sex addicts, besides being sober, which means stopping whatever the behaviors is, is starting to be completely honest, rigorously honest with themselves, with their partners, with everyone. 
And that's the beginning of healing towards intimacy is honesty. And that is hard for average people. That's just hard. That was a long answer to a short question. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that um, it's different types of intimacy. And I think that uh, sometimes sex addicts can have it distorted. Like there's like uh, friendship intimacy, there's romantic intimacy. Uh, and then there's also love languages that you can learn different um, levels of intimacy. If you know Gary Chapman's, uh, some people like hugs, some people like quality time, some people like different uh, physical touch and things like that. So there's different styles, there's different uh, levels of intimacy too. However, uh, Rachel said it very uh, well that the start of uh, ha having healthy sex starts with the healing process and recovery for the sex addict because it's being raw and being uh, open and being honest about yourself can help with intimacy first. Truth. So are there exercises or questions you ask to get people to be honest with themselves? Because most people really think on the surface that they are honest with themselves. I know in the counseling that I do, that's an issue. They think they're really honest with themselves and what they want when Sometimes just telling me, I don't know what I'm doing over here is better than pretending that you know. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think breaking through denial is the, the beginning of the work with an addict. I think, you know, if I'm being pragmatic, um, if someone comes in wondering if they have a sex addiction, we have several assessments online that we actually ask people to take and we do hours of interviewing to assess whether there's a sex addiction. And through that interviewing and the assessment, sometimes like there's a, a small assessment where you get to see where you are in the graph, six and above is sex addiction and you can see it in color. And for a client who's like, no, nah, I'm normal. It's, I'm like everyone else. I don't know what my partner is like complaining about to see that they're at a 17 or a 14. Like those are some of the ways that we start breaking through the denial. But I think like really working very closely to see what parts of people's lives are not congruent because addicts do not, they're not congruent. They don't follow their belief system. They are living this double life and starting to like show what the double life looks like and having them get out of denial. I mean, that's a lifetime of work. I don't, there's no cure for that. I think it's constantly working on it, at least for me. I don't know for other people, but. You know, what's interesting. Uh, about three weeks ago, I sat in an intensive with Rachel for the first time and she uh, instructed me to work with a client almost every lie he ever told. Like, and we put construction paper on the walls, right? And he had to write down every lie he ever told to his partner, to his friends and family. And let me tell you, that was the most intense experience I've ever been in as a clinician. And what was wonderful about it is he, he sat in silence a lot of the times because I had to keep pushing him and, and, and literally, literally help him define what was true because some addicts can lie so well that they believe their lies. And when it's another person in the room letting them know, like, you know, withholding information is still a lie. And that's very hard for people to understand. They can tell partial truths. They can tell a part of the story 
but you know that's still a lot. And it, it was a wonderful experience, but it was extremely hard. It was very hard. One of the hardest interviews I've ever experienced as a clinician, I'll say that for sure. But I think also, oh, I'm sorry, Stephanie. No, I was just sitting here and thinking, oh my God, how do you remember all of that? It's like you're questioning everything you ever said. How do you remember? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think about that is why no addict of any addiction can get sober and stay sober and be in recovery alone. Because, I mean, this is human nature for sure. Right. Like, we lie to ourselves all the time and we rationalize it. But for addicts, like we've spent so much time compartmentalizing that we don't want to be able to trust only our perception of things. And that's why we live life in consultation and community with other people who understand who can confront us about our BS and like show up for us in that kind of way. And I think that's what's important about therapy, 12-step programs, groups, whatever it is that you find as a resource, because I know I'm a really good manipulator. I, and I manipulate myself first and then I try it on other people. So if I don't, if I'm not surrounded by people who can be like, mm, no, that does, that does not sound right. Then I just think it's human nature to keep fooling ourselves. We need community. Is, the, is there a 12 step program for sexual addiction the way there, <clears throat> the way one exists for say alcohol and cocaine and gambling and drugs? Yeah, there's several actually. So one of them, and I I think that um, Brian sent, we're going to leave resources so that if people just want some of the lists of links that we sent that so that they have that available. One of them is SA, Sexaholics Anonymous. That's one 12-step program. Another is Sex and Love Addiction Anonymous. And that that's a little complicated, but that is for people where maybe sex was part of the acting out, but really relationships and intimacy was more what the goal was. And then there's a 12-step program for pornography as well. Um, the majority of my clients either end up in SA or SLAA. I think there's also an SAA. There's several. Yeah. I was just about to say there's SAA, another one that uh, people can look up to for uh, meetings too. There are virtual, there are many in the Chicagoland area online. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are 12 step programs that people can take advantage of. Um, cool. Uh, one of my questions is for many years, I found outlets to satisfy what I always perceived as a large sexual appetite. Now, I don't, I guess large is defined individually, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, my partner doesn't seem to want a lot of sex, so I've been involved in affairs, porn use, and regularly receive sensual messages. Is this really a problem? My friends brag about their conquest and what they're doing sexually, and they do not seem to have a problem. Why should I worry? <laughs> Sorry, I think that's a funny question. Um, it's not, it's one I hear a lot. Um, Brian, did you want to add anything, or do you want me to start? You can start. You know, I'm just... <laughs> Okay. So I think that's a, I, the reason why I'm laughing is because that sounds like a lot of rationalization to me. Um, because I think that if you have a high sex drive and for me, definitely a 
an absolute for what healthy sex is, is consent. And so if you are in a partnership and you have a different sex drive than your partner, that, and you have a healthy relationship to sex, that might be hard to negotiate and navigate, but that's a conversation that you have. Then you reach areas of compromise. You don't, I have heard so many sex addicts tell me that they were cheating and they were acting out to save their marriage and help their, I'm gender stereotyping, but help their wife. Like I have heard so many people, that is a whole load of baloney to me. I've heard that too, and I've wondered how that works. You know, it's like, like. What's amazing about an addict is the rationalization within the question. (laughs) I have a high sex drive. So that resulted to me into affairs and sexting as uh, as an escape. So even the notion that escaping and using these different things as a resource is a direct link to a possible addiction in a way to just off the wording of the question. Now it could be problematic. This individual could possibly, you know, not have a dependence or abuse this particular issue, but just the rationalization within the question alone, let's, let's any uh, professional like Rachel, like, hmm, we, we can have a, a further conversation about this for sure. Yeah, because I know certainly not everyone who cheats is a sex addict. I would say probably more people are not sex addicts who cheat. Like there's lots of reasons people rationalize cheating, but cheating is still not a healthy behavior. And a sex, a high sex drive is not a reason to cheat and nor is it a reason to act out. If you are in a healthy relationship, then you have a conversation. And in any relationship we compromise. And if you have a high sex drive and you're single and you're having consensual sex, then it doesn't have to be a problem for anyone. But I think if you're asking that question, if you come into my office asking that question, that means it's been a problem for somebody. Exactly. And you've been lying. I do want to say, though, and this part, like, it's not so funny, is that I think people have a really hard time talking about sex altogether. Like, I have worked with so many couples who've never, as a couple, ever talked about sex and what they like, what they don't like. What's, what's their favorite foreplay? What turns them on? What doesn't turn them on? So I do understand that it is a scary conversation, even just to have healthy sexual conversations with your partner. But I know that not having those conversations and lying and being deceitful shows an unhealthy relationship with it. Maybe it's not an addiction, but it's not a healthy relationship. So in your sessions, do you talk about things that for the addict so that they can understand what the healthy relationship is and how they can get to that point. Because um, they obviously, like this guy, you know, and I'm lost too on why do we care if their friends are bragging about their conquest? You know, I'm lost there. It's like, I didn't know anybody really cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how would you help them have that conversation so that they can get their needs met and at the same time help them understand what their needs are because maybe they don't even know what their needs are. Yeah, that's a big question. So I would say in the beginning, if there's a sex addiction, the recommendation is that for at least a minimum of 60 days, the person's not sexual at all, not masturbation, not sex with their partner, 
because if you're thinking about it from like drug addiction or alcoholism, then they need a period of sobriety and abstinence so that their brain can start healing from all of the adrenaline and all of like the neural pathways that continue to get hit. I think that sex and cocaine actually hit the same neural pathways in your brain. And so, yeah, it's really intense. And so the beginning of, of working with a sex addict is actually abstaining from all sex and then starting to look at what kinds of behaviors have, and like what kinds of things have contributed to their sex addiction. So I would say that for a very long time, like the conversation isn't what is healthy sex. It's really more like what has been unhealthy about your sex life. My clients call it like the don't, like it's the time when you just talk about the don'ts and not the do. And it can take a while, a long time before we're at the place of talking about healthy sex, because for a lot of the sex addicts that I work with, they're not honest about any part of their life. They don't want to tell anyone the truth. Like they don't, they don't know how to deal with conflict. They don't know how to say what they need. They don't know how to talk about anything, honestly, let alone sex. So it's really more about looking at how much they've been hiding and lying and living a double life, not just about the sexual acting out, but about their whole selves and just getting honest before we get the, I would say, this is not a statistic, just like from my experience that it's actually like in recovery, a lot of addicts are afraid to become sexual again because their experience of, with sex and being found out is so traumatizing and has so much shame that they're afraid to be sexual because they're afraid of like almost like unleashing that part of themselves that they have been so shameful about. It's a long, complicated process. I was just about to say the shame, shame, shame and guilt with, with understanding that shame and connection to that guilt with the healing process to recovery, they can start just to start having a conversation about what healthy sex is, but it definitely takes a while for that could even be a conversation because people have shame talking about sex, let alone addiction with sex. So those are two different conversations sex, healthy sex, and then you have an addiction to sex. Those are three different conversations in a way because they all have emotions connected to it, those particular behaviors. You're right. We don't do a good job talking about sex. And I've done a couple of podcasts about talking about sex and talking about um, different positions and different toys and things like that. And I'm amazed that we just don't do a good job talking about sex. And as I always say, we don't talk about the two things that have so much power and control over our life and that's money and sex. Mm-hmm. So I talk about the money part and then I get experts to talk about the sex part and I'm always like, gosh, we've got to talk about this, you know? <laughs> and for those of you who don't know how, there are really books in the library that can help you talk about it. I mean, even write about it but there's so much shame I guess and embarrassment to it yeah and, Dr. go ahead Dr. You, you know what made me think about what me, me have conversations about especially people of color black people right right us being raised in a very religious background can 
sometimes dictate our beliefs about sex too. Um, and Rachel can give you uh, some more information about how like some of her clients have, have come, come from very religious backgrounds to even have shame connected to masturbation to a degree. So it's, like, it's very complex of reasons why people don't talk about sex because there is a religious, religious standpoint and religious beliefs that interfere with people just even enjoying sex to a degree. So it's, it's really complex. Okay, I was raised Baptist and uh, I read books with my kids about sex and everything, <laughs> sex and menstrual cycles and everything, right? So, right, right. But mo uh, many people aren't as liberal as that. And being liberal and then have a religious practice, those are two different, com two different, uh, two different conversations too. And that also still brings shame because if you're religious and you're like enjoying sex to a degree outside of marriage and queerness, different identities that still complicates sex in a way to a degree. Yeah, and if you did, and generally in the Af African-American community, we don't talk about sex addictions. Uh, we talk about other addictions, but just not sex addiction. And it almost seems like if you talk about sex, it's an issue, but I keep pushing the envelope because it's one of the things that we do that affects our lives, our community, our children, and we need to have healthy practices about how we do this. So, <laughs> so when you so when you have an African American client and they were raised traditional religious background, so we won't blame everything on Baptist because I was I I'm a metaphysical practitioner now, so it's like I grew up, but we won't blame everything on Baptists. How do you handle that? Because they are dealing with the religious shame, uh, and then especially if they're not married, and especially if they like multiple sex partners, and especially if they have, a, if they have some kinks that they like. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, kinks are things outside of just regular missionary sex, okay? So... Uh, so how do you handle that and make them comfortable enough to talk about it? Because I can imagine uh, just what they feel like just in day-to-day -day around their family. There's yeah. really so much shame there till my God. Yeah, so I, I grew up Orthodox Jewish, so in a very religiously conservative community. And a, and a lot of my clients have been and continue to be religiously conservative people from different faiths. And I think the first thing is to make sure that you're seeing a therapist who understands their own biases, because I know that as open and as clear as I want to be, I grew up in a religious community and I have my own stuff around it. So I think that as a therapist, I always need to be checking myself and being honest about my own biases. But I think that I am not, I do not feel comfortable telling people what healthy sex is or isn't because I think that's a dangerous place to be and that's how I listen because I've had a lot of clients come in and even diagnose themselves as sex addicts who actually weren't but maybe they were gay men who in their community it was safer to be a sex addict than a gay man or maybe because in their religious beliefs, masturbation was a sin and therefore any masturbation was a compulsive 
behavior. So it's not helpful for me to say, I cannot say it to any client, but masturbation is normal. It is healthy and it's appropriate because it's not my business. It doesn't matter what I think about it. I think I have to make sure that the client can talk about what it means for them and are they being congruent in their lives? And if not, what helps them? Like, what's the obstacle? So rather than assuming like there's, and that's a hard process because I think the majority of us like to think like there's one way to have healthy sex or there's definitely some ways to not be healthy. I don't think that that's true. I think like letting go of those beliefs and letting the person in front of you dictate what that means to them and, and figure that out. But I think that that can be really hard sometimes. Um, it's very hard for me to watch people have so much shame mm-hmm. and like struggle with things that I feel like they don't have to, but it doesn't really matter what my opinion is. It matters what theirs is. So have you found that sometimes people, they switch addictions? I find, so when I deal with people who have addictions with money, finance, I find that they do everything I say about saving money and not spending, but my God, they're over here doing something else that's totally out of control too. So do you find that that happens also? Yeah, I would say that a good portion, and this is also something that we assess like in the initial interviewing and going along, actually have cross addictions. There are certainly people, and I've seen this like with people who even like get um, like the gastric bypass or the sleeve and then they become alcoholics. So I definitely see people like switching, but in a lot of my clients, there's cross addictions where there's a sex addiction and maybe a drug addiction, maybe food, maybe workaholism, maybe money. It's it usually there's other types of addictive behaviors and trying to understand how they operate together and how they're linked is something that we work on. And when I first started working with addiction, it was so long ago that you were allowed to like smoke cigarettes uh, in treatment programs because it was considered that like, well, like let them quit the heart addiction and then work on the nicotine. But then over years, the research showed that it's the same neural pathways, that if you don't address all of the addictions at once, because you think that like, well, food or cigarettes are not as bad as heroin or prostitutes. So then like, that's actually not real. Like if you're in that addictive process, you're in the addictive process. So really starting to look at what other addictions there might be operating at the same time is really important. So do they freely tell you or do you have to pull it out? Or is it a conversation that says, oh, hey, well, this is what I also do. Yes. That seems to be the hard part because I don't know. I think as a society, we think that the things that actually like will destroy our life or wreck our lives are the only things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, and the other stuff people say, it's like, you know, if, if it's a food addiction and you don't weigh, you know, and your, your weight is not life-threatening, nobody talks about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I think that sometimes people are honest, but oftentimes it's really just confronting the denial. When I think about like one of the socially acceptable addictions, particularly for men is workaholism. A lot of my clients are workaholics and like really fit the criteria for workaholism, but I'm gender stereotyping, but for men, 
that's not, that's lauded for a lot of men. Like, oh, you work 20 hours a day. Oh, you keep going for like, you're barely home. You don't see your kids. Like that is almost socially acceptable in a lot of like communities. It's not considered a problem. So that's harder to confront or like busyness. Food addiction, I think might be sometimes easier to confront. Um, but I think it take, I, honestly, like I really believe that all of us want to be healthy. Like even if we're in denial, even if we're lying to ourselves, there's a part of us that knows and wants to be well, and we're meant to be well. We're meant to be whole. I love what you said. Like we are meant to be doing so many things in this world. We're not meant to just be doing one. And I think we know, even if we can't admit to ourselves when something has taken over our life past where it should, and it's just giving people an opportunity to have that level of honesty. But sometimes you have to pull it out, throw it out, confront it, laugh about it. I don't know, everything. Do you know, you know what's interesting about, about processes, processing addiction is, uh, it makes me think of how when those things aren't addressed at the same at the same time, like Rachel is speaking about, that clients they figure out like, oh, once they get sober with alcohol, they realize that they have a sex addiction. Oh, once they get sober in sex addiction, they realize that they gained forty pounds because they have a food addiction. So the best thing about you know doing these assessments and getting like a holistic or collaborative care is you start to track how all these different addictions is linked to your feelings and, and you get the ultimate, you know, treatment option, treatment because you're treating everything collectively versus you get sober with alcohol, but then you start smoking cigarettes and then you stop smoking cigarettes and you start smoking marijuana. Like a lot of these things are linked. And if clients come, mm -hmm. they are honest and they get the right efficient treatment plan that they could potentially be sober from everything if, they are honest with the, the the assessments that you know Rachel been speaking about. So those of you who are listening and work with me before now, you know that my questions about how you what were you thinking about when you were spending that money you didn't have makes sense, right? What how are you feeling and what were you thinking about? Because I too try to get down and what are you really feeling? What are you really thinking about? Because it's not about that purse that you can't afford. It's about something else. And they are all interrelated. So um, share a success story with us. Mm. You're allowed uh, to change the names to protect them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, a client who I work with now, because we really haven't talked about the partners of sex addicts, like people who are in. Oh, yes, we haven't. We have some time left, too. And 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 they are usually in extreme levels of PTSD and trauma. And so when we're talking, when I'm talking about the healing, I'm thinking about not just the addict, but also the trauma of the partner mm -hmm. and then the coupleship. And I have seen, I, I actually think that, and this is something that is promised, but no one really believes that people get to a point in their recovery when they are almost grateful for the addiction because their marriages or their relationships, their relationship to their children, like are at the level that they could never have reached before. And I, I see that when I think about like couples who I thought were never gonna make it, 
but have worked so hard and consistently and can be open with each other, can be vulnerable with each other, can forgive each other, can forgive themselves. I, it's really beautiful. I know that's not really specific. I have a lot more funny stories about the problems than I do the solution, <laughs> but I've been doing this for a really long time. So if there wasn't hope, I don't think I could keep doing it. It's really, I think particularly with sex addiction, because you know, alcohol is not who we are. Drugs are not who we are. They're, they're things that we can leave behind, but sex and sexuality is literally part of our identity. So to have a relationship, both for the addict or the partner who's traumatized by that, that is so shame-based and so trauma-based, and then to develop honesty, authenticity, like a loving relationship for themselves, for sex, for their partner is the best thing ever. And that is definitely why I can keep doing it every day for, for so long. So we've got a couple more minutes left. So Brian, tell us why you love doing this. <laughs> um, I love it because uh, I know that I have, you know, people in my family that suffer from addictions and I never knew why. I chose this field, but then as I got older and I, uh, as I got older and I got out of graduate school, I realized more and more I was handpicked by God himself to do this type of work because addiction runs rampant in my family. And I love what I'm doing. I love what I do too, because I feel like it's making me a better person to a degree. Like I, the, when I have had some hard sessions, right, where I'm cr I could cry and light a candle and I could feel like there was a part of me when I was younger in college that I used to be resentful to God about this type of work. And then I realized, and as I accepted my assignment, I got better and better. And um, it's, it's a beautiful experience, like Rachel said, like seeing people heal themselves and, um, and God using me as a direct source to help people. Well, I feel that our paths choose us uh, and it just takes us a minute to warm up to what it is we're supposed to be doing and where we're supposed to go. <laughs> so I wanna thank both of you guys for accepting this path and doing this work. This is such important work that needs to be done because as you said, sex is a part of our life and if we, aren't careful, it can be a part of what ruins our life too. So we, so for those of you listening, uh, feel free, please to reach out to Rachel or Brian. And if you um, don't remember the information, it'll be on, on my website. Plus you can give me a call and I'll make sure that they get this information. So I wanna thank you all for dedicating your life to make sure that people are healthy in every way possible so that they can live the best lives that we have to live. We only get it, we only get one life and we need to make this one count. So with that, as I always say, may this day offer you just what you need in each unfolding moment. Be inspired until further notice, celebrate absolutely everything. Do not go gently into that good night, but find a heal worth dying for and take it. Be the person that you have been waiting for. Make today so awesome that yesterday gets jealous and above all else, do it your way. I am Stephanie Wilson Coleman, the empowerment doctor and life is too short to drink cheap champagne. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Brian. And I look forward to having you back again on a follow-up show. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
You're welcome. With that, we'll say good night to everyone that's listening and look forward to the replay that will be posted in about a week. Bye now. Good night. Good night. Good night. Hi, I'm Stephanie Wilson-Cohen, The Empowerment Doctor, and I needed to share this with you today. People who know me know I do about 21, 25 miles a week, but today, I didn't want to do it. I hurt my toe, and I came up with every excuse under the sun, but I finally got myself up and got it done. So I wanted to share her techniques so that you can stop that negative self-talk quickly. When that happens to you and is bound to happen to all of us, take a deep breath. Inhale and exhale. This allows your thought process to slow down. It allows you to realize that you are in a position to do the things that you can do. And it allows you to recognize the things that you cannot change so that you don't waste your energy trying to do those. The next thing is to acknowledge your thoughts. Regardless if they're negative, if they're positive, just don't name them. Just call them thoughts and know that it's very natural for you to have them. I want you to identify the cause of those thoughts that you're having. So take a minute to think about what's happening behind those thoughts that we call negative. So there are there complaints? Is it just a negative thought? Um, are you talking about you having the inability to do something like strengths, talents, or uh, abilities? And then what are your abilities? Because there's a good chance that if you do that, that you'll be able to face any fears that you have and you will erase these negative thoughts. The next thing is create a routine and stick to it. That's what I had to do in order to get back in shape is I created a routine and I stick to it. So I go to bed at the same time, I get up at the same time, I have my meditation at the same time, I do my exercise at the same time. And the last thing is to consciously work to silence your thoughts. It takes a little practice, but you have the power to do that. So if you have constant negative chatter in your mind, sometimes I just tell it to shut up and we'll get back to you later. You have everything it takes right now to get started toward reaching your goals. And remember, life is too short to drink cheap champagne. By the way, I did finish my miles today. And guess what? My toe didn't even bother me. <laughs> I love you all. Have a great one. Bye.